Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. So we're in the middle of a series on the Old Testament, answering tough questions about the Old Testament. And uh, why is there so much violence, slavery, things like that? Last week we talked about trunk uh, questions versus branch and, uh, and twig questions. This whole idea that there will always be some questions in the Old Testament we can't, uh, we can't answer. There will always be some things that will stump us. So what happens when someone at school or university or in your workplace or in your family uh, challenges you with something from the Old Testament that's bothersome? They pull a verse out, they say, how do you explain this? And you can't explain it. What do you do, right? Uh, do you allow seeds of doubt to start growing in your heart? Do you allow them to walk away and just say, hey, God's, you know, God's a fairy tale, and I can't believe the Bible because of this? And we talked about this whole thing that these trunk questions, when most of these questions that people are asking are actually branch and twig questions, and when they ask questions like that, we don't have, doubt and, and, and uh, unbelief don't have to creep in, and we, don't also, we also don't have to let them walk away and just say it's a fairy tale and disregard it all. We can bring them back to trunk questions. And so last week we talked about one of the trunk questions, which is origins, and we talked about the fact that, yes, it's very easy for someone to pull something out of the Old Testament and, uh, and say, uh, well, yeah, see, look at this, you can't explain this to me, therefore God is a fairy tale. Well, right there, without even having to answer their question, we can stop them, we can say, wait a, wait, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, you say God is a fairy tale, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? If God is a fairy tale, let's, let's forget about this little question you have in the Old Testament. Let's put that aside for a moment. You think God's a fairy tale because of this little question over here. Let's, how about you explain to me the alternative? How did the universe come to be? If there is no God, how did the universe come to be? And we talked about the fact that it is impossible for the universe to always have existed. We talked about it, how impossible it is for the universe to pop into existence out of nothing, the fine-tuning and engineering of the universe, impossible for that to happen by chance. And basically what we, what we found by the end of the message was there has to be a God out there somewhere. Amen? There has to be an unimaginably powerful being outside of space and time who created space, who created time, who created the universe and all that. Now, of course, the following question, which we did not get to last week, is, well, how do you know it's the Christian God? Okay, so fine, I accept that there must be a God out there, but how do I know it's the Christian God? There's many different faiths out there. There's many different belief systems and philosophies. And so someone might look at some of the stuff in the Old Testament and say, well, I don't like the Christian God. It must be a different one. And, and of course, some people almost get overwhelmed by the question. Okay, fine. I acknowledge there must be something out there to make the universe. There must be someone or something that made the universe. I get that. But it's almost overwhelming to think, how am I going to sift through? How am I going to sift through all the different belief systems out there? There's billions of people out there who believe different things. How am I going to sift through all of it and figure out which one is true? And the fact of the matter is it actually isn't that complicated. We don't actually have to take an entire lifetime and read every single religious book and, and deeply study every single religious belief and, and philosophy because basically everything can be broken down, to, down into three broad categories. And I'm going to pray in just a moment, but I want us to look at those three broad categories and then we're going to kind of take this pathway leading from last week and we're going to move to the question of violence in the Old Testament. And uh, I, want to, I want to show you the violence in the Old Testament in a whole new light and contrasted with some of the other religions. I really, one of my biggest uh, prayers for this weekend, the services and for you guys this weekend is uh, sometimes it takes comparing Jesus. Sometimes we take what's in this book and our faith in Jesus and what he did for us. Sometimes I think those of us who've grown up in Christian homes, grown up in a Christian uh, community, uh, we, I think we take for granted how wonderful this book is. And I think we take for granted how amazing Jesus is. And sometimes, in order to appreciate Jesus, it's helpful to contrast it with other faith systems. And I think after today, you're going to appreciate Jesus a lot more. And that's my prayer for you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into this. Uh, let's, let's bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and let's just worship Jesus for a moment. Lord Jesus, we just lift up your name. You're the whole reason we're here this morning. It's all about you. I feel so blessed and so lucky to get to be a part of this church family. And I, I, we just, you know, we hear stories. We get to hear stories like this, like uh, Chris and the school ministers team that's, that's in Panama and how you're ministering through them and, and doing miraculous things. That's incredible. Uh, thank you that we get to be in a country where we have the freedom to worship you. Lord Jesus, I pray that in this message, we're going to get to appreciate you more. 
as we contrast you in this book with some of the other religious books, Lord, I pray that we would grow in our love for you, but also we would grow in our love for people who don't know you yet. And I just pray that your spirit would be moving in powerful ways. In Jesus, in you, Jesus, in your precious name we pray, amen. So getting to that violence in the Old Testament, getting into that contrasting Jesus with some of those other worldviews, I want to just start where we left off last week and just say, okay, there's a God. How do we know which one it is? And again, we don't have to be overwhelmed. We don't have to look through every single religious system uh, because basically every worldview in the world can be broken down into one of three basic categories. And so the three basic categories are the first one is the atheistic worldviews, and there's different ones in there. I don't have to name them all, but basically these are the worldviews that say there is no God, the universe is everything that exists, and that's what I spent last week's message on, basically showing it's impossible for the universe to always have existed, both scientifically, logically, philosophically, and, and based on physics, it's impossible, and it's also impossible for the universe to pop into being out of nothing. Therefore, we can safely say that is not a worldview, we don't even need to investigate it any further, it's impossible, okay? So what are we left with then, okay? So now we have to pick a God, so to speak. So which God is it? Which worldview is it? Well, there's two other categories. One is the pantheistic and polytheistic worldviews. And, and don't be intimidated by the, the words. Some of you like big names. Some of you hate them. You don't have to be intimidated by the words. It just means those are the worldviews like Hinduism and native spiritualism and animism. Those are, those are just the worldviews that either say there's many, many gods out there or that uh, God is in everything, okay? He's, the divine is in you and me. He's in, the divine is in the stones, this kind of mother nature sort of thing, that nature itself and the universe are sort of somehow God. It's sort of co conscious somehow. And so the question, and then of course there's the monotheistic, which we'll get to uh, at the end, which is there's one God and he made the universe. And so the question is now, do we have to go through all the different religions and figure out which ones uh, are true? Well, right off the bat, we look at the pantheistic and polytheistic worldviews. By the way, I should probably just take a time out here for just a moment and just uh, uh, put a warning politically incorrect on this entire message today. Uh, today's message is going to be incredibly in, in, politically incorrect, and not because we don't like people. I'm not going to make fun of anyone. We certainly are not going to ridicule anyone. People are not bad for believing some of these other things, but today's message uh, is going to be incredibly politically incorrect because I'm going to say that some people are wrong and some people are right. And that's actually okay, and we can do that in a loving way, and I want to do that with a loving spirit, and I will. And, and that's the kind of church we are. But as we look at the pantheistic, polytheistic worldviews, so for example, Hinduism. I looked up Hinduism this week because I wanted to figure out how many gods are, do Hindus worship. And the, and the first thing that struck me was Hindus themselves can't agree on how many gods they worship. Some will say that there's hundreds. Some will say that there's thousands. I looked up uh, one guy, a Hindu expert, writing an article, and he said that there was 33 million gods, but other people dispute that, so they don't even know how many gods they worship, okay? But it could be hundreds, it could be thousands, it could be uh, millions, okay? And these gods do uh, all kinds of different things, some of them, and again, we're not, this is not about ridicule. People are not bad for believing these things. People are not stupid for believing these things. We're not making fun of them. The but the question is, are they true? Does this give us a true picture, does this give us a coherent worldview, an explanation for how did we get here? Well, Hinduism talks all kinds, you know, there's different gods, some of them have eight arms, ten arms, blue color, they ride on roosters, all these things. Again, we're not making fun of them, this is what they say. And the first thing you have to understand about these pantheistic, polytheistic worldviews is they are not historical, they are mythological. Okay, let me explain those two words. Because again, sometimes we can't appreciate our faith or this book until we see them in contrast. We just, it's like a fish in water. A fish lives in water. He doesn't even know what water is because that's all he knows is always being in water. And some of us who just grown up in Christian communities and, and grown up in the church and grown up in Christian homes, we don't even think about the fact that when I open the Bible, the Bible isn't telling me myths. The Bible talks about history, real people, real events. For example, the Bible tells stories about Moses taking the, the, the children of Israel out of Egypt. They crossed through the Red Sea. If that isn't a true story, then the Bible isn't true. We can close it up, put it on a shelf, because the, the premise of the Bible is real people, real events. It's a historical book about real people, that at a real point in time and real events. 
This is not something to take for granted. If you look at the pantheistic and polytheistic worldviews, and for some of us it would almost boggle our minds because we're just not used to that kind of a worldview. Actually, what they believe is mythological. Uh, they believe in all these different gods and, and, you know, and these gods do different things, but there's no archaeological evidence for any of the things that happen between these gods. There's no historical evidence. And these people themselves would tell you that. They're okay with that. They're okay with believing a myth. For example, many of these faiths, there's different, uh, you know, many different kinds, and some of them will tell you that the entire earth is held up by a giant turtle. Now, again, we don't make fun of that at all, but the point is we all know this isn't true. It's not reality. And even the people themselves who are in these religions don't actually believe the world is held up by a giant turtle. It's, it's, it's mythology. You say, well, why would someone believe it? Well, it's culture. Uh, they don't maybe have other options. It's, it's a good feeling. Some people believe these things because of meditation and, and it's a feeling they give. But again, the point is, these worldviews are mythological. They do not give us a good explanation, for example, for the for the fine-tuned engineer of the universe. We look at the universe, it's precise, it's regular. The physical laws always work the same no matter where you go. Physics is the same anywhere you go in the universe. And it's engineered. Uh, 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 a chaotic spiritual system with thousands or millions of gods fighting each other and doing bizarre things does not explain to us how the universe became ordered and regular and precise. Okay? And it's amazing when you contrast these pantheistic and polytheistic worldviews, it's amazing when you contrast them with Christianity and, and, and the whole thing of how, uh, how intensely historical this book is. For example, Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the center of our faith. You read throughout the New Testament, I'll show you just one passage. I could show you many. Let me just show you one passage to show you the tone, the kind of book, and the kind of faith we have. 2 Peter 1, 16-18, Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now you'll find statements like this throughout the New and Old New Testaments. And again, we take them for granted, but many faiths have nothing like this. They have myths, they have cool stories. Like, sure, in Hinduism, there are some stories there that are cute. There are some stories that are funny. There are some stories that are neat. There's some stories that are disgusting. There's different stories in there. And I'm not, again, people aren't bad for believing them, but do these stories tell us reality? No, they're myth. They're made up. These, these people writing the New Testament were telling us about things they saw with their eyes. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the mountain. Do you see the difference? And I could show you passage after passage after passage. So which one explains to me how the universe came to be? Which one explains to me where I'm going? Many of the polytheistic and pantheistic worldviews believe that, yes, where are we going? The Bible tells us, you know, God made the universe and in the end we're going to spend eternity with him if we give our lives to him and, uh, and he's going to come down to earth and heaven all that sort of stuff. The pantheistic and polytheistic theistic worldviews uh, talk a, a lot about reincarnation, okay? That there is no heaven, there's just, you hopefully live a better and better life and you keep getting reincarnated better and better and better until you come to this place of basically nothingness. But if you live a bad life, you could come back as a, as a wood tick or a, or a house cat or something like that. And again, my point is not these people, and it's true, but it, I mean, we, we kind of giggle Again, we're not, I'm not mocking people at all, not at all. Don't hear me wrong. It's actually what they believe, but is it true? Do I actually have to be worried if I go out tomorrow? Now, the, the, the weather, thankfully, looks terrible, so I probably won't. But if I would go out tomorrow and mow the lawn, you know, during a good Manitoba, you know, spring or summer day, and the mosquitoes come out, literally, do I have to worry if I smack a mosquito that this could be my great-grandmother? That's a, that's a legitimate question. Does, do these worldviews, again, there are people that in some of these worldviews that worry about killing an insect because of reincarnation, do these worldviews tell us the truth? We're not tell, saying people are bad, we're saying, do they tell us the truth? And the answer is, it's just totally different than Christianity. Meanwhile, Jesus was an actual person in history. I could show you quote after quote after quote from the first and second centuries AD, not even, just, not even biblical writers, and I mean, this should be enough already. It gives us a good testimony, good historical evidence. But outside the Bible, I could show you his, you know, ancient writer after ancient writer who accepts that Jesus was a real person who died on a cross. I'll just show you, I'll just show you a couple. 
uh, Josephus, one of the famous, uh, most famous Jewish historians and writers of Jesus' time period, wrote this. Uh, very, I mean, he's, he's a trusted historian about lots of things. Lived in the first century A.D., just like Jesus. Now, around this time lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was a worker of amazing deeds. Josephus even admits that uh, Jesus must have done miracles, or, I mean, he calls them amazing deeds. And was a teacher of the people who gladly accept the truth, he won over both many Jews and many Greeks. Pilate, when he heard him accused by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, but those who had first loved him did not cease doing so. To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared. Right here in this, and, and Joseph was not a Christian, we see confirmed that Jesus was a real person, that he did miracles, that he died on a cross, that it was Pilate, and that was disputed for a while among historians, but we see here confirmed that it was a man named Pilate who crucified him, Okay. This is all historical. This is not a myth. This is not a made-up story. This is a real thing. I could quote you person after person after person. Uh, Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, and on and on and on, people who live in the first century AD that admitted that Jesus was a real person. I, I want to read you a couple more quotes because these are just really cool. Uh, this is from the, the Talmud, which is a collection of... This is from people who hated Jesus, okay? And this is from a collection of writings from the first and second centuries AD. These are some of the Jewish religious leaders they hate Jesus, but they don't deny he existed. Look at this. Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray. Even there we see an admission that he was doing some amazing stuff, miracles. They attribute it to magic. In another passage in the Jewish Talmud, it was taught, on the day before the Passover, they hanged Jesus. A herald went before him for 40 days, proclaiming he will be stoned because he practiced magic. Now you can see some of this stuff is made up. And enticed Israel to go astray. Let anyone who knows anything in his favor come forward and plead for him. But nothing was found in his favor. And they hanged him on the day before the Passover. Again, these people obviously didn't like Jesus. But again, we just see evidence. He was a real person. He actually died on a cross. He did miracles. He taught people. This is all real. Which is why no historians, again, compare this to the pantheistic and polytheistic worldviews. No history, mythology versus history. Actually based on a real person, real events. But Dr. Craig Evans, an expert in New Testament history, says this, no serious historian of any religious or non-religious stripe doubts that Jesus of Nazareth really lived in the first century and was executed under the authority of Pontius Pilate, the governor, governor of Judea and Samaria. Now, I want to read you one more quote, and the reason I want to read you both these quotes is because uh, every single year it's like clockwork. The editor is at CNN, and I hate to pick on CNN, but they just make it so easy so often, okay? <laughs> but I think the editors at CNN have on their, on their they have like a, a reminder on their calendars, every year at Easter and every year around Christmas, they pull uh, anybody they can find off the street to write an article and question the existence of Jesus. And it's bizarre, and people read these articles, and it's because it's on a respected news site, everybody goes... Oh, maybe there's debate about Jesus. Maybe this is a fairy tale after all made up by Christians to help us be morally better people. And it's absolutely false. Okay, Paul Meyer, written a lot of books, professor of ancient history, Western Michigan University, says this, there's more evidence that Jesus of Nazareth certainly lived than for most famous figures of the ancient past. This evidence is of two kinds. It's internal and external, or if you will, sacred and secular. In both cases, the total evidence is so overpowering, so absolute that only the shallowest of intellects would dare to deny Jesus' existence, all right? So why do I bring all this up? Because Christianity is based on history, not mythology. Christianity gives us a coherent worldview. How did we get here? And where are we going? Pantheism and polytheism fail on both counts. They might give people a good feeling when they learn to meditate. They might make some cute stories. I won't deny any of those things. It doesn't mean that those people are bad, but they don't give us a coherent worldview. They don't explain how the universe came to be. And, they don't give up, and they're not based on history. They're based on mythology. So what are we left with? We've crossed off the atheistic worldviews. If you want to go to the next uh, slide there. Thanks, Ken. Uh, the atheistic worldviews don't work because the universe couldn't have popped into existence out of nothing. The pantheistic and polytheistic worldviews, they might, again, they might give some people a good feeling. They might help them to meditate and do things like that. But they don't give us a coherent worldview. How did we get here and where are we going? So we're really left with, we don't have to spend a whole lifetime reading every religious book to figure it out. We're left with monotheism, which is, which is the worldview that there's one God out there, some supreme being outside of space and time that made the universe out of nothing. That's the only thing that makes sense, which means we've, we've narrowed things down to three. There's Judaism, there's Islam, and there's Christianity. Now, 
Uh, here's one of the things now, one of the most common things you will hear in our culture now all the time, all the time. And when I was in university at the U of M, I literally probably heard this almost every day in the halls and in a classroom somewhere. And, if, and, and one of the reasons I'm so passionate to preach this message and last week's message and this whole series on the Old Testament is we have so many young people, our young people as a rule, I'm not saying ours here in Southland in particular, but as a general rule in the church, our young people do not do well when they go to university. Our Christian young people go to university and they've got seeds of doubt that were planted when they were in middle school and nobody ever answered it for them and nobody ever stood up for the truth and they just get washed in lies every time they go on the internet and every time they go to school and then they go to university and they're just washed in skepticism and nobody ever stands up for the truth. And then they leave the faith. And I'm just passionate that here at this church, we're going to stand for the truth. And so one of the big things in our culture that they're going to hear again and again and again and again is it doesn't matter which religion you pick. All the religions are basically the same. It's just different paths to the, to the same place. It's just different paths to God. And then here's the thing that people always do. Uh, they'll say that, and then they'll pull a verse out of the Bible about love. And then they'll pull a verse out of the Quran about love. And then they'll pull a verse out of some Hindu scripture or, or some Buddhist writing, and they'll say, love, love, love. And it's true. Every single major, uh, you know, religious writing, uh, pretty much, I, I mean, maybe I can't speak for all of them, I haven't read all of them, but pretty much every single one will have some verses in there somewhere about love. And so people will say, see, it's all about love. I've actually heard this, not just at university, I've heard it from people here in this community. They're all the same. It doesn't matter which one you pick, they're all about love. Basically, it's just different ways of becoming loving good people. So Christianity, the Quran, look at all these verses about love, it's the same. Well, saying that all the religions are the same because you can find a verse about love in all the, in all the religious writings is like what I'm going to tell you now. It's like saying that a snowball is the same as my minivan because they're both white. Okay? I want to talk to you about the difference, and, I'm, and I mean that. It literally, it is, that's, that's what it's like. It's, you say, no, that doesn't sound the same at all. No, no. There is a difference between something being superficially similar and something being fundamentally similar. Yes, you can take any major religious writing and pull out a verse about love. If you, I mean, if anybody's ever written a book long enough, the word love will come up in there somewhere. So yeah, you pull out a verse out of Hinduism, you pull a verse out of Buddhism, you pull a verse out of Islam, you pull a verse out of Christianity. Love, 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 love. It's all the same. That's the same as saying snowball and my minivan, same because they're both white. It's a superficial difference. Because here's what I know about a snowball, okay? It can't drop my kids off at school. It can't bring the groceries home from Superstore or wherever. It can't take us to Winnipeg and protect us from the elements in winter. It can't do any of those things. It might be the same color. And you say, but yeah, 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 yeah. But the snowball's also round. And the wheels on your van are round. Yes, very similar things. Very, very similar. They are superficially similar. Same color. Same shape, you can tie in a little bit here or there. Superficially similar, fundamentally different. It's like this. Imagine I pour you two glasses. One glass I pour with some of my Killex uh, weed killer, okay? Now that stuff is uh, locked up tight. It's like having a gun nowadays in Canada. You can, people don't want to, you, government doesn't want us to kill our uh, dandelions, but I, well, I shouldn't go there. I need to just step back now and just stop. <laughs> I just hate dandelions, but uh, I won't say anything else and incriminate myself. But anyway, I pour you a glass of my, you know, Killex weed killer, and I pour a glass of iced tea, and I put them side by side. They're both brown, and they're both liquid. And you put your finger in them both, they feel the same. You say, see, they're the same. They're brown, they're liquid, they feel the same. Okay, take a swig of each and see if they're the same. <laughs> one will knock you out, one will quench your thirst. They are superficially the same. They are fundamentally different. The fact that you can pull a verse out of each or two or three or four or five out of each of the scriptures about love and say, it's all about love, it doesn't matter which one you pick, is just shows ignorant of what, ignorance of what these religions really are. They, you can find superficial similarities pretty much in any book if you just compare them long enough and if they're long enough, but they are fundamentally opposed to each other. For example, Christianity teaches that Jesus is God, that he came down to earth, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that if you put your trust in him, all of your sins will be forgiven and you will go to heaven, okay? But for example, Islam teaches the exact opposite. And I can't, I can't, Islam doesn't just teach a little bit different. Islam teaches the exact 
opposite. Islam teaches Jesus is not God. I'll show you some, some verses from the Quran in just a moment. Islam teaches he did not die on the cross explicitly. Islam teaches if you believe that he is God, you will go to hell. Those are two paths leading in opposite directions. They're not leading to the same place. If Islam is correct, we're going to hell for believing Jesus is God. If Christianity is, is correct, we're going to heaven because Jesus is God. Those are two paths leading in opposite directions. Regardless of you found a verse here or there about love. That is a superficial, barely skin-deep similarity. They are fundamentally opposed to each other. Let me read you just a couple of passages from the Quran, And that doesn't often happen here at this church. So if you're new here, please forgive me. But do you know that sometimes Jesus, you, just in order to appreciate him in the word of God better, you have to see the sadness and the darkness that some billions of people out there are living in. And so the Quran says this in chapter 4, verse 171. People of the book, that's Jews and Christians, this verse is actually to us. Do not exceed the limits in your religion and attribute to God nothing except the truth, the Messiah. Now here's another thing. People will point to the Quran. And if, with, inevitably, if they know anything about the Quran and Christianity, they'll say, here's another similarity. Muslims believe that Jesus is the Messiah. See, it's the same thing. What they mean by that word is very different than what we believe. So let's keep reading. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was only a messenger of God, not God of himself. In his command that he conveyed unto Mary in a spirit from him, so believe in God and in his messengers and do not say God is a trinity. Give up this assertion. It would be better for you. God is indeed just one God. Far be it from his glory that he should have a son. Islam repeatedly, in a number of different verses, denies that Jesus is God's son. Here's another one about the cross. Here's what Muhammad wrote in chapter 4, verse 157 of the Quran. And for their saying, indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him to them. So basically what Muslims believe, because Muhammad has written it in the, in the Quran, is that, uh, Jesus, that, that the Romans crucified someone who looked like Jesus on the cross, and that's why the Christians thought it was Jesus but that Jesus, Jesus was a prophet and, and God would not have let, allowed him to die. And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following assumption, and they did not kill him for certain. Now, here's the interesting thing. Just on this point alone, we can actually reject the Quran because it's historically inaccurate. Historian after historian after historian from in the Bible and outside of the Bible all agree and testify to the fact that Jesus actually was crucified and killed. There's debate about whether he rose from the dead, and that's a whole other message, and Pastor Ray did one on that on Easter, uh, on Easter, which was amazing. But just on this fact alone, the Quran, written 600 years later, is in disagreement with all the historians from the time. But here's what the Bible says about what the Quran says. Now, actually, the Bible came 600 years earlier, so you know, John isn't writing this thinking of Muhammad, but he's thinking of the spirit behind it. Here's what John said in 1 John 2, 22-23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the, the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. These are two fundamentally opposite and opposing things. They're not the same. They're not the same. How about salvation in Islam versus salvation in Christianity? I, I hope that in the next few minutes you're going to have a gratitude for salvation and a desire to pray for Muslims. Here's what Islam teaches, and I can show you other verses. Quran, chapter 11, verse 114. Here's how you're saved in Islam. Surely, good deeds take away evil deeds. In Islam, you're saved by doing more good deeds than bad deeds. Now, on the surface, that seems like, like good news, doesn't it? Well, if I just do good deeds, it'll erase my bad deeds. The only problem is that that highway goes both ways. I don't know how many of you have ever had a chance to look deep inside yourselves, and I know, but I know I have, and I've had a lot of impure thoughts and motives and, and words that I've said that I regret and things I wish I could take back. Evil deeds also take away good deeds. And how do you know if you're racking up more good deeds than bad deeds? It leaves you in a perpetual state of doubt. I'll get to that in just a moment. But look at the, the vast difference between Islam, where you have to be good enough to be saved. You've got to have more good deeds than bad deeds. Look at what Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 say. And I could call the entire New Testament as witness on the stand to what is God's plan of salvation. Look at how opposite this is. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift. What is it? It's a gift. Now, some of us growing up in the church 
And in Christian families, we take this for granted. Oh, oh theology, it's a gift. But 1.6 billion people out there live in darkness thinking they have to earn salvation with God. And they don't know this amazing truth that salvation is a gift, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Isaiah 53, verse 6, it's even in the Old Testament. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, not on us. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Is that not incredible? Think about this. Think about being one of those 1.6 billion people born into a, into a Muslim family, a Muslim country. Okay? And you're raised. This is how you're taught about Judgment Day. There's no assurance of salvation. Here's what happens on Judgment Day. is that You stand before Allah and there's a scale. And Allah puts your bad deeds on one end of the scale and he puts your good deeds on the other end of the scale. And hopefully the good deeds outweigh the bad because if the bad outweighs the good, you're going to hell. Can you imagine how that is to grow up in a system like that and to live like that and to never have assurance of your salvation? You know, us Christians should be the happiest people on earth. We should, we should be weird we're so happy. Get up every day and just, whoo! Because we can know. Look at Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, this is all you have to do. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? It's a gift. So the next time someone throws at your kids, and are, you talking to your, are we talking to our kids about this? Are, are the seeds of doubt, they might, be, they might be good kids right now. They might be going to church with you right now because they've got a compliant personality, but someday they're going to go to university and they're going to go out there, they're going to go to high school, and they're going to be confronted with this. And they're going to be told, oh, they're going to be shown a verse in the Quran. See, it's about love. The Bible's about love. And they go, oh, I never saw that before. And they're going to be shown the Quran says Jesus is Messiah. The Bible says Jesus is Messiah. It's the same thing. It's just different paths in the same place. And they've never been told that that's like a snowball in a minivan. Those are such skin-deep, superficial similarities. These religions are utterly opposite and opposed to each other. Radically different. They cannot all be the same. They cannot all be true. And the same is true of the violence in the Old Testament. I did a search this week, and it is so popular now. So many articles have been written comparing the Old Testament and, and the Quran. And, and uh, I just saw so many articles and news outlets. They love to print these things because, see, Christianity. It's, it's no different than Islam. They're both, they're both violent. In fact, I saw a bunch of articles that talked about it, how, how these news organizations had done textual analysis. They had done textual analysis, and they had found that actually the Bible has more violence in it than the Quran. And obviously the people doing this textual analysis have never actually read the Bible or the Quran. Because the first thing they would have found was that, yes, true, there, there's more violent incidences in the Old Testament. There's two reasons for that. One is the Old Testament is eight times longer than the Quran, and it's a history, so there's battles in it. But the second thing is context. There is a big difference between me telling you a story about something violent that happened and me telling you to go and me getting you all mad and telling you to go out and do violence. Is there not a big difference in that? If I come up here and I tell you a story about something from the past, let's say I've got some great uh, grandpa or great uncle that fought in World War II. So I come up here on stage and I tell you stories about battles from World War II that he was in. Those stories will be violent, will they not? It's because they're stories about battles, okay? But will you leave this church going, I'm going to go out and kill someone, okay? Hopefully not. <laughs> if that is what rises in you, Tim Ryan, you need to make an appointment with him this week, immediately, okay? Tim R at MyCellPhone.com and seek help. Um, there's a big difference between me getting up here and, teach, and telling you a story about something my great-grandpa did in World War II and me getting up here and telling you hateful things about people and saying, now go out there and get them. Those are two radically different things. But these news organizations, what they do is they do textual analysis and they just pick out all the violent words and then they say, look, there's more in the Old Testament than in the Quran. Okay? But what they've done, and now I'm going to take you through this just briefly, they have, done, they have made several massive mistakes. First of all, you cannot interpret the Old Testament. In, for Christians, you cannot interpret the Old Testament without the New Testament. Is that not true? 
Because the entire Old Testament is what? It's the story from the beginning. God created the, the earth. Then what happened? The fall. Satan got in there. The forces of evil are in there. And now we have the promise of a Messiah who's going to redeem the earth. So the whole Old Testament takes us from the beginning and then points us to the need for a Messiah. It doesn't give us the end of the story. The New Testament comes, and what is Jesus? The fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was pointing to. So as Christians, what are our marching orders? Jesus isn't just another person. It's not, here's Moses and here's Jesus. Which one are we going to follow today? We follow Jesus. Yes, that's true. He's the center of our faith. That's why we're called Christians. We worship him. He's the one who made us. It's all about Jesus. So if you want to compare the Quran's teaching on violence to the Bible's teaching on violence, you don't compare Muhammad to the Old Testament. I'll get to the Old Testament in just a bit, which tells us a history of violent things that happened in the past, but doesn't tell us to do violence now. We have to compare Muhammad to Jesus. What did Jesus teach? So what did Jesus teach? Well, Matthew 5, 38 to 39, you have heard Jesus said that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You can do all the textual analysis you want. On the Old Testament, this is what our command is as Christians today. Matthew 5, 44 to 45. Jesus says this just a few verses later, but I say to you, love your enemies. This is, this is mind-boggling. If we had some lifetimes to study all the other religious books and then come and see the teachings of Jesus, it's like cold, clear water for a guy who's been in a desert for a long time. It's just so beautiful. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And did you know that Jesus also explicitly forbids us from spreading the gospel by, by violence? In John 18, verse 36, Jesus clearly says, this has nothing to do, by the way, with pacifism. That's a different topic entirely, where, you know, Christian people have served in, in armies to defend their country or whatever. That's a different thing. We're not talking about that. But Jesus specifically forbids violence to spread the gospel about Jesus. That you never convert people to Christianity by forcing them or by threatening them. Look what he says in John 18, 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. I haven't given Christians a plot of land to fight over. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. But they're not fighting. He's given himself up to die. He's on his way to the cross. That I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Right there, Jesus says, I forbid. My servants will not spread my kingdom by violence. They will turn the other cheek and they will love their enemies. That's what they will do. Now let's compare this to Muhammad's teaching in the Quran. And I, could pick, I, I had 109 different verses to choose from. Okay? Here's what Muhammad says in chapter 9, verse 29. Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day. Do you see the difference? Love your enemies, turn the other cheek. My servants are not fighting because my kingdom is not of this world. Muhammad says, fight those. Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are of the people of the book, that's Christians and Jews, until they pay the jizya, that's a humiliation tax, on people who refer, refuse to convert to Islam in Islamic countries with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. That's in direct opposition to Jesus' teaching. Now, you, someone will say, yeah, but the Old Testament commands violence too. Let me show you the difference between the Old Testament's commands of violence and Muhammad's. Muhammad's commands in the Quran are, are open-ended, they're for all his followers for all time. Now, I'm not saying all Muslims are violent. I'm not saying that all Muslims condone violence. It's certainly not true. I know that there's many Muslims out there around the world who, who want peace and don't want war. I'm not talking about what every Muslim believes. I'm talking about what their scriptures say, though, and what, and what Muhammad taught. Muhammad's command is for his followers for all time. The commands in the Old Testament of violence, there's no command in here where God says, all my followers for all time fight the unbelievers. In the Old Testament, what we have is a history of a particular point in time. 3,500 years ago, Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, and God gives them a plot of land with clearly defined boundaries. 
And at that point in time, he says to that group of people, it's not for Christians for all time, Jesus gives us our marching orders as Christians and he says, love your enemies and do not take up the sword. The Old Testament has these commands of a particular point in time. It's like me talking about World War II. And he said, you guys can go and take this plot of land. And even in that time period in the Old Testament, God never said conquer the world and, and, and go and kill every, everyone wherever you find them. He gave them clearly defined boundaries. In fact, I'm going to show you a couple of verses in the Old Testament where any nation that was outside of the boundaries of the promised land, God expressly forbid any nation that was outside those boundaries. He said, you will not fight them. I will not help you. You are only allowed to fight these people in this plot of land. It was for a specific point in time. It was not open-ended for all time. I'll show you just a couple of verses where God restricted the Israelites within their boundaries. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. God never said to the Israelites, take over the whole world wherever you find non-Jews. Absolutely not. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And in another verse in that same chapter, he says, And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for possession, because I've given R to the people of Lot for a possession. Now, some of you are sitting there right now and you're saying, something's not right here. You're you're, some of you are thinking there and you're doubting, you're thinking, you know, you're just taking, you, I know what you're doing, Chris, you're, you're cherry-picking a few verses. You cherry-picked a couple of verses from the Quran to make the Quran look bad, and you've cherry-picked a few verses out of the Bible to make the Bible look good, and now, and now you all tailor it together in a message, and you say, see, Christianity is not about violence, and the Quran is about violence, that's how you do it. And so you think to yourself, the only way you could ever figure this out would be for you to read the whole Quran and read the whole Bible and then compare them verse by verse the whole way and see what they say. And, and, and by the way, that's a, great, that's a very good objection. That's an excellent objection. How would you know? How would anyone here this weekend know? How would any of you here in the service know right now that I hadn't done that? That I haven't just cherry-picked here, cherry-picked there, made the Bible look like it was saying something, make the Quran look like it's saying something, put them together and say, see, the Bible says this, the Quran says this, but actually if I pulled other verses, it would say something totally different. How would you know that I had not done that? Well, it's a good objection. It's a good thing to think about. So I have something for you. We have a saying, and the saying is this. Actions speak louder than words. Isn't that true? Actions speak louder than words. So how would you know that what I've told you about the Bible and about the Quran is actually true? I'll tell you a two-part test. And the test is this. We compare the actions of Muhammad and Jesus because the actions will tell us what they really taught and what they really believed. And then there's a second part to this test. We'll compare the actions of Jesus' earlier, earliest followers, the ones who knew him, the ones who were with him, the ones who saw how he lived and heard what he taught, and we'll compare the actions of Muhammad's earliest followers, the ones who knew him, and the ones who heard what he actually taught and were with him and saw how he lived. Because then we'll just have history. We won't have any preacher just taking verses out of context. We'll just have history. What did they live, and what did their followers live? Well, let's look. And everything I'm about to tell you, you can look it up on the internet. You can ask a Muslim, if you know any. You can just ask them. Okay, so let's talk about Muhammad. Sometime around the age of 40, he starts getting these revelations that he's going to write down that are eventually going to become the Quran, that are going to become this new religion 600 years after Jesus called Islam. Okay, and uh, he's getting these revelations over the course of a few years. He begins to tell people about them. Not many people want to convert. At first, he tries to tell people what it, about it, uh, you know, just peacefully, and he's hoping they'll just convert. And not many people want in. At a certain point in his life, he a little bit, you know, switches gears, we'll call it, and decides, well, if people aren't going to accept this peaceably, then I'm going to force them to believe it. And he spends the last decade of his life fighting battle after battle after battle, going to war with all the tribes in the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia and some of the other countries there. And in the last decade of his life, that's what he does. He fights battle after battle after battle until he conquers the entire Arabian Peninsula. That's the last decade of his life. I'm not making anything up. In fact, Muslims themselves celebrate this history. They celebrate some of, his, some of his battle victories. They have celebrations. Hey, this victory or this victory that Muhammad had, okay? I want, you to, I want to contrast that now with the life of Jesus. He never fought a single battle. 
He never killed a single person. Not only did he not kill a single person, he did the exact opposite. He gave up his own life to save us. And what do Christians celebrate? Do we celebrate battle victories? Or what do, what's our biggest celebration? It's Easter and Good Friday. We celebrate our Savior dying for us. They celebrate their prophet killing to advance the religion. It's two totally, radically different things. It's absolutely, like, there's a verse about love, it's a verse about love, they're the same thing. They're utterly different. And how about their earliest followers? How about their earliest followers? What did Muhammad's first followers do after Muhammad died? I'll tell you what they did. They went on a 120-year crusade of war. They conquered, and again, I'm not making this up. You can just go and look. Muslims themselves don't deny it. This is how Islam spread. They went on a 120-year-long crusade of war. They conquered the entire Middle East. They conquered all of North Africa, and they even began to conquer Europe. They were knocking on the door of France. They conquered all of Spain and Portugal, and they were even threatening Italy. That's in 120 years with the sword. What did Jesus' first followers do, and how did Christianity spread? Well, I remember how it happened, right? It's somewhere in the Gospels. After Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples took up swords and charged the Colosseum. Ah, Braveheart, and started slaughtering Romans, and that's how they spread it all over the... Is that what happened? The exact opposite. They did the same thing their leader had done. They were martyred. All but one of the disciples was martyred. And even John, they tried to martyr him. They, the story goes that they were dipping him, uh, dipping him in, in, in boiling oil, and he wouldn't die. So eventually he got to die of an old age, but he's the only one, okay? But the rest of them and hundreds of other Christians in the, in the early church, they were crucified, they were burned. Nero used Christians as human torches in his gardens. They were, they were thrown to the lions in the Colosseums. They were stoned. They were persecuted. They weren't the persecutors, they were the persecuted. They spread the gospel of Jesus Christ through their own blood, not the blood of others, through martyrdom and evangelism. It's absolutely, totally different. And again, I'm not saying, I want to just say this again because we live in a political climate where I want to make sure I bend over backwards that people aren't reading into things that I'm not saying. I'm not saying every Muslim today believes in violence. No, I'm not saying every Muslim is a violent person. There's many, many people who are Muslims who are wonderful, gracious, hospitable people here in the world. Okay? I'm not talking about is every Muslim a violent person. I'm talking about history. What did Muhammad do? What did Jesus do? What did Muhammad's followers do? What did Jesus' followers do? You can tell their teaching from there. I couldn't take anything out of context for that. You can see the teaching embodied in their lives. Now, there's one last point I have to make because someone's sitting there and their leg is shaking. They want to make this point so bad. Please, me, 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 me. Would you please tell me, what about the Crusades? Because that's always, that's always the, this is where we hit the Christian now because he, he, he thinks he knows what he's talking about, that Christianity is not violent, so we just bring up the Crusades, whammo, and we knock out the Christian because look at the Crusades. Christians were spreading their religion through violence. It's no different than Islam. So either way, you make Christ Christianity and Islam the same. So you say either you find a few verses about love and you say they're the same, or you look at the violence and say, look at the Crusades, look at Islam. They're both violent. They're both the same. Superficial differences, or I mean similarities, fundamental differences. First of all, I won't even get into the history of the, cru the Crusades, the fact that the Muslims were already attacking Europe and just about took France. That the Crusades in many ways were a, were a war to push back the Muslims out of Europe and all that sort of stuff, but we don't even need to go there, okay? We can even admit, absolutely, I wish that people, that the Crusaders had not attached the name of Jesus to what they did and that they did horrible things, particularly to, to the Jewish people uh, in the Middle East. It's awful. Horrible things were done. It should never have happened, okay? But if we look at the history of Islam and the history of Christianity, what you find is the Crusades, first of all, are, an, are isolated events, the vast majority of the church, it did not spread. In fact, the Christianity didn't spread through the Crusades. It was, a, it was an abysmal failure and disaster. Christianity has always spread through evangelism and martyrdom. The Crusades are an isolated incident, but there's something even further that you have to know, regardless of all of that even. Here's the difference between the Crusades and, and, and Muslim conquests. First of all, when the Crusaders did the things they did, they were disobeying the explicit commands of Jesus, and they were disobeying the example of Jesus. 
In the Muslim conquests, Muslim invaders were obeying the commands of Muhammad, and they were obeying the example of Muhammad. Those two things are very, very different, are they not? So you say, what do we do? What do we do with a message like this? Other than to plant the seeds of confidence in our hearts and in our kids' hearts and help them stand for truth. Here's what I want us to do to finish. I want us just to love Jesus. He's amazing. And sometimes we take him for granted. Too often we take him for granted. When you contrast this book, the word of God that God has given us, and you contrast it with some of the other faiths, what we have here is light. What we have here is wonderful. It's a gift. And this amazing, gracious Savior who gives us salvation as a gift and who loves us very much and who gives us hope. So we should appreciate him and we should love him. We're going to do that in just a moment. The second thing is we should not go out of here and be angry. We don't go out of here and get mad every time we hear about a terrorist or we hear news like that. We don't get mad. We should actually feel a burden of love for them unbelievably. That there are billions of people out there that live in darkness and they don't know the real God. And they live in hopelessness. It should encourage us to pray. Our prayer summits should be overfilled and flowing, praying for church renewal and for the world. Why does, you say, what does church renewal have to do with this? You know what? The more hundreds and hundreds of churches that get in this, God's spreading that light in Latin America, in, across North America, in Africa, in each of these places that light spreads and these churches come on fire and they're impacting people so that other people can know the good news too. And we should just be filled with a desire that this dark world would know Jesus. Amen. So I want you just to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And I just want to worship him and I want to ask him to shine his light in this world. Lord Jesus, we just lift you up today. You are amazing. Thank you that we get to live in a free country to worship you and love you. Lord Jesus, we don't mock any of the human beings here on this earth that you have made. I just want to pray. I want to pray for church renewal, that you would spread it further and further, that we could even have impact in countries where there are Muslims as well, Lord, Hindus and all of that. Lord Jesus, I'm praying that your light will shine into this dark world. I pray that you will send missionaries and leaders from this church and from church renewal churches around the world that we can see a tremendous harvest. Lord, I pray that on this, on this church, you would make us a house of prayer, that we would intercede for the nations that we would love the nations, Lord Jesus, and that we would lift your name on high. We will never apologize for you or for your word. You are good. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.